Our title for our sermon this morning, An Opportunity to Work, Not an Excuse to Wait. An Opportunity to Work, Not an Excuse to Wait. Our text comes from the book of Romans, chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. The last few verses of Romans, chapter 13. You can uh, find that on your Bible, in your Bible or on your phone if uh, you would like to use the Bible uh, and didn't bring one. There's a pew Bible in front of you in the hymnal racks, and then I'll have it up on the screen in just a moment. Paul, writing to the church uh, and to those saints that are at Rome, he says, and that knowing the time, Knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting, and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. But Troy Money, would you list a word of prayer before we expound upon these passages this morning? Men. In prepping for this sermon this morning, I was reading some of the writings of uh, John MacArthur, a uh, well-known uh, preacher. I, I enjoy reading his writings. Uh, he is Calvinist, and we uh, agree to disagree on that fine point. But other than that, he's uh, pretty straight as a string. And what he had to say about this particular passage is this. The phrase is, now it is high time, our salvation is nearer, and the night is far spent, the day is at hand. All express urgency. Time is limited. Opportunity is brief. There is no time for apathy, complacency, or indifference. Not to be judgmental. Not to be arrogant and say that others are this and that I'm not or others are this and we are not. And, and not to be offensive. But if ever the Lord's churches need to understand the urgency of the time, it's us. It is the Lord's churches in 2019 that need to understand there is an urgency. For time is short. Opportunities are brief. There is no time in our world and in our lives for us to be apathetic, for us to settle for complacency and indifference. For weeks now, we've been considering the idea of it has become a matter of life or death. Churches are dying. We are losing churches right and left. 
even in the state of Arkansas, the amount of churches is lessening each and every year. In 1990, 4% of the population of the United States of America claimed that they were not affiliated with any denomination, any church, or any religious organization. Since 1990, that 4% has tripled and grown higher year by year. Does that not tell us that there is an urgency that this is not the time? As Paul looked at these saints in Rome, notice that he doesn't say it's time to wake up, but in the King James Version, he said it is high time. Did your mama ever tell you it is high time to do something? I remember those words uh, coming in from football practice and, 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 you know, wanting to go out and do this and that and the other, and so you take all these sweaty clothes off and, and you throw them there in the floor and you head right back out the door to go and do something. And, and I know this is gross, I'm sorry, but five, six, seven days, those still sweaty, nasty clothes are still sitting in the floor. And your mom comes in to wake you up one morning or something, and she opens that door and she's, Woo! Son, it is high time you clean this room up. Why did she say high time instead of get your room clean? Stressing. Why do we stress? There is an urgency. Son, you will die from the fumes if you don't get this thing cleaned up. Son, I don't know what all that smell is, but it may infect everything we own. Son, it is nasty in here. It is not time for you to clean it up. It is past time. Faith Missionary Baptist Church, it is past the time for us to understand that there are thousands in Arkadelphia that are dying and going to hell, and we have been lethargic, and we have been inactive and complacent long enough. It has become a matter of life or death for faith and for all true New Testament churches. If Paul, now listen, I understand somebody's probably going to be uh, offended and say, well, he ought not be so strong and bold, and, and he's telling us we're this and that and the other. What did these saints at Rome think when Paul said, guys, it's high time that you get up and do something. It is time for you to wake up. You have slept long enough. Sometimes... As God speaks to us from his word, it reveals us for where we are and what we are. And we don't really like it all the time. I did not like the word of God telling me I was a depraved sinner. That my acts of sin were at war with God. And that, that I was a, 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 just a sinful, rotting, you know, just a sack of mud. In fact... That that I called righteousness, my good deeds, Jesus said they were filthy rags. And filthy rags are the wrappings of a dead body or the cloths used in the menstrual cycle of, of the female. And so Jesus, and I know that's graphic, but Jesus said that's what your righteous acts mean to me. I didn't want to hear that. But had I not heard that, I don't know that I'd have ever come to him for salvation. If we never hear from the Apostle Paul and from God himself that it's high time to wake up, is it possible that we'll still be asleep 
when Christ comes. I want you to think with me for just a minute as we consider this idea. The lateness of the day and the times in which we live has created an excuse, an excuse for most of us not to work and just to wait. Oh, preacher, it's a bad world we live in out there. It is. I wouldn't doubt that at all. When people walk in the mosque and kill and 40 people are dead, it's a bad world we live in. I don't think people ought to be killed in mosque any more than I do a Baptist church. I don't think students ought to be killed at school. I don't think pornography and sex trafficking ought to fill our lands. I don't think we ought to have abortions. I don't think we ought to have uh, uh, drugs and alcohol to be the problem that it is in our land. But it is here. And we cannot use those things as a, as a means, an excuse to hole up in the house of God and just sit here and huddle in fear and waiting for Christ to come. Jesus lived in a terrible time. He lived in a wicked world. And yet he continued to do the Father's will. Noah lived in a world that was so bad that God destroyed it with flood and yet the Bible says Noah was a preacher of righteousness it's high time to wake up and go back to work we cannot we must not use the lateness of the day as an excuse any longer As you consider this idea when, Paula, when, Paula, when Paul says it's high time, there are two different Greek words for time. The first one you'll recognize very easily, it's chronos. And it's what we get our English word chronology from. And this word chronos just refers to time uh, in an abstract sense. But that's not the word that Paul uses here. Paul's not saying, listen, I'm your alarm clock, it's 6 o'clock in the morning and you've got to get up. Paul uses the word kairos here. There's a difference between kairos and chronos. Kairos has more the idea of seasons. It's a, it's a, it's a season. It's a, it's a, it's a specific uh, cut out a chunk of chronos. Kairos is part of chronos, but it, it, it is kind of bracketed. And so that this particular part of the chronos, time abstract, is a season. What Paul is saying is, is you and I need to look around at the seasons and realize it's time to wake up. Do you remember what he told the Pharisees? Of course, they weren't high on his list as being great spiritual, uh, you know, people that knew and, and, and lived and obeyed the Word of God. He told them, he said, you know, it's a crying shame. You people can look at the clouds and how that they're lowering or raising, and you can look at the color of the, of the sky, and, and you can look at this and that and the other, and, and you can tell what the weather's going to be like tomorrow. Do you remember what he went on to say? But you can't look at the times. And that's that word kairos that he's talking about. You can't look at the season of time that is right here that God has given you to do something in response to the Messiah coming, you're not even seeing that this is that part of time in which God is working a wonderful thing in your midst. Isn't that a shame? Isn't that sad? Here's God working this wonderful plan 
in this season that he's given to these people and they ain't got a clue what God's doing. Faith, could it be that God works and has given us a season, a time to work? And there's so much that God would and could do we're sound asleep and ain't got a clue. Remember what we've talked about along the way the last several months. Jesus said in John chapter uh, 13 through 17, greater works than I have done, you're going to do. And we asked ourselves, are we doing greater works? Are we doing greater works? We began kind of this study about when Paul wrote and he said, listen, I'm bound in chains but the Word of God is not bound in chains. The Word of God is still powerful, and it's still going to touch lives. Now, it is true, we must understand the foundation, as we talked about last week, where our people are now compared to where they were a few years ago. But the Word of God is still powerful. It'll still change lives. we got to wake up and get the Word of God to a lost and dying world of humanity. Or we can be like you are I am sometimes when you're really tired and the alarm goes off and it's cold outside and you're sleepy and you want to hit the snooze and pull the blankets up over your head and just hope it all goes away. The only time the lost world's going to go away is when they go, die and go to hell. They will ever be with us. We have a season to reach them. It's past time. It's high time that we wake. Denny defines this time, this kairos, this word kairos. It's not time abstractly but the time that they lived in with its moral import, its critical place in the working out of God's design. It is time that is regarded as having a character of its own, full of significance for them. Weist translates verse 11 this way, and this knowing the season, that it is an hour now for you to awake out of sleep, for now, our salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night has long been on its way, and the day has arrived. Therefore, because of those truths, let us at once, immediately, let us at once and once for all put off the works of the darkness. And let us at once and once for all clothe ourselves with the weapons of the light. Paul said, please understand the time in which you live and know that it's time to wake up. The Encyclopedia Britannica defines sleep as this. It's on the board behind me. You can follow along. A state of inactivity with a loss of consciousness and a decrease in responsiveness to the events that are taking place around us. When you consider the work of God, 
This is a condemning definition, isn't it? Pay close attention to the latter part of it. A state of inactivity. But this is the latter part of it. The, next, the rest of it is what really troubles me, if it be true about our churches. A state of inactivity. A loss of consciousness. It's like churches don't even see anymore and realize the countless masses of humanity that we come into contact with every day. A loss of consciousness and a decrease in responsiveness to events taking place around us. Has our world gotten worse? You better know it. Is it going to get worse yet? Yes, it is. Shall we decrease in our response to the events taken around us? Or do we realize that the world is getting worse, which Paul said it would, which is an indication that end times are here, and say we better get back to work? What must we do? Number one, remember what we already know. Paul is asking them to remember what they already know, and that is that Christ is coming back. See, that's what's involved in the idea that our salvation is nearer. Salvation is not a process by which you become more and more saved by doing good works. Salvation is not a process by which you uh, become more saved today than you did yesterday because you sinned less today than you did yesterday. However, salvation is a process from start to finish in this. You have received salvation full and whole as far as the gift of God once you accept Christ as your Savior. That is the past part of salvation. I'm 100% saved. I'll never be any more saved than I am today, and I was never any less saved than I was after I got saved, if that makes sense. You, salvation is not a process in that sense. There is that point where I was justified and saved immediately right then and there. However, salvation begins and becomes a process by which I am now sanctified. My salvation is working out itself within me to change my life, to change the way I think, to change the way I act, to change the way things I say, to change me, to conform me more to the image of God's dear son. That's the sanctification process. That's an ongoing process. But if you think my salvation is over, I got another thought for you. One of these days for long, this old flesh is going to fall off from me. And the inside of Jesus Christ that God saved with the blood of Jesus Christ is going to rise victorious out of here. And my salvation will be complete when I receive my glorified body in the presence of God. See, my salvation is not brought to its final end yet. But I can talk about it as it is because it is more sure than anything in this life. All right? And that's what Paul's saying. Our salvation is nearer. Well, the completion of our salvation, the glorification, what's he talking about? That time in which Christ is coming back. Remember what I read in 1 Thessalonians? Paul, the same author, said, you guys don't need me to write to you about this. You already know all this stuff. People are always talking about when's Christ coming back. That's why I am an adamant believer in what I believe about the tribulation period. 
The disciples asked for a singular sign. Jesus gave them a singular sign. The rising of the Antichrist. We know. We know. People can debate it. They can argue about it. But Paul said, you know. You don't need me to explain this anymore. We don't know the day and the hour. But we can watch the signs of the seasons around us and realize that things are being set now for an antichrist to rise to power. The technology is there now to do what must happen during the last part of the tribulation period. Remember what we already know. We act like we got lots and lots of time and we know what's going to happen tomorrow. You may live another 25 years, but that person that God places in your path today, they may not live 25 more years. You might be, I might be, the last-ditch effort, if you will, of God to send his message to that person through us. Church, we must wake up. We must shake off the complacency and realize what we already know to be true. Our season is running out. Paul said it this way, the night is far spent and the day is at hand. What must we do? We must remember what we know. We must wake up. I want you to think with me for just a minute. I want to share you very quickly three situations where children of God were asleep. The first one is the prophet Jonah. God says, Jonah, and so you don't get this necessarily just in our English leadings, but as you study the Hebrew, somewhere in the past, Jonah tells God, I'm your prophet. I'll, I'll go deliver your word to these people here in Israel, anywhere within Israel's borders, and, and I'll tell them that hard message that they don't want to hear. Lord, I, I, I will serve you by delivering your word. And God said, well, all right. I'm glad to hear that, Jonah. Now, the only problem is you're not staying here in Israel. You go to Nineveh and preach. Well, whoa, wait, 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 Lord, whoa. That's not going to work, Lord. See, I know what kind of God you are. You love people, even Ninevites. Yuck. And if I go over them, and I, if I go over and I tell them that you're about to destroy their land and them, they're going to turn to you in repentance. And God, I know what you'll do. <laughs> you'll save them. And I really don't want to be a part of that. I'm kind of happy with the idea that you're just going to destroy them. So Jonah says, I, no, I won't go, Lord. So he goes the opposite direction. And he causes himself to buy passage on a ship to go the opposite direction over towards Spain. And while he's traveling in this boat, the Bible tells us a great storm comes up and all the people that are working the boat, the crew, who none of them know Christ as their Savior, none of them know the true God, they are panicked. Now these are people that sail every day of their life. They've seen storms. But this storm has come up so severe, they're throwing all of the cargo overboard. There goes all of the prophets, 
matter of fact, it's going to cost you a whole lot of money when you get to the port and you don't, you know, now you got to, not only do you not have anything to sell, but you got to pay the people that shipped it with you because you've thrown it all overboard. Another thing you may not know, Paul describes this when he was caught in a, in a, in a storm at the sea, that many times when these little boats would be caught in the storms of the sea, the sailors would dive with a piece of rope in their mouth and they'd dive overboard into the midst of the rough and turbulent sea and they'd swim all the way underneath the boat and they'd come back up the other side and they'd throw the rope and while they were carrying it to the side of the boat, they'd swim back underneath the boat and they'd throw the rope down to them and they'd swim back in, and they would wrap that boat three or four times in three or four different places from, from the bow to the stern trying to hold it together. Any of you want to be a, uh, one of those divers? Guys, I'll take my chances. <laughs> if you think I'm diving out there, you're crazy. These guys were doing everything they can, and the Bible says they began to pray out to their gods. And they're calling this one and that one and the other one, and the only guy there, the only child of God that knows the true God and has the power to do anything, guess what he's doing? Sound asleep. What an opportunity to look at these pagan sailors and say, you know what? I know Jehovah God who controls the winds and the waves. What an opportunity to share Jesus but he's asleep. Fast forward a little bit. Jesus overcome with passion. His heart is so heavy. He's experiencing physical things that you and I will probably never experience because of the weight of the sorrow that has gripped his heart. He is sweating great drops of blood, something that, that, that you and I probably will never experience in this life. His heart was that heavy. Now, in the upper room, before they go out to the garden, he has already told them that tonight they're going to smite the shepherd, and guess what's going to happen to all you sheep? Y'all are going to scatter. Every one of you are going to leave me high and dry. And one of you is going to deny me three times. One of you is going to betray me. And they all asked, Lord, is it I? And the way they asked that, asked that question demanded a negative answer. So what they were saying is, Lord, you know it's not me, don't you? <laughs> not me. I won't deny you. I won't betray you. And no, I will not leave you high and dry, Lord. After Jesus tells them this, he carries them over the Mount of Olives to a garden called Gethsemane. He deposits 11, uh, pardon me, he deposits uh, eight of the disciples. Judas is already gone, and he takes three with him, Peter and the sons of thunder. And they enter into the garden a little bit, and, and, and don't tell me that they could not sense what was about to happen. Or at least something was going on. And Jesus says, guys, I've already warned you what's going to happen. How many times had Jesus ever been wrong to these guys? Do you not understand that when Jesus said this is going to happen, 
and you say, no, it's not. We're better than that. Do you understand what you're saying to Jesus? <laughs> Guys, that hour is coming. Watch and pray. And he goes on a little further and he prays. Father, you know what's about to happen. If there's any way, any way that we can accomplish redeeming mankind that does not put me on that cross, then, Father, let's do it that way. But if that's what I must do, then I'll do it. He comes back over here, and these guys are snoring. You couldn't watch and pray one hour with me? Especially after I told you what was coming? Guys, watch and pray. I know you don't think this is necessary, but your flesh is weak. I know your spirit, it's willing, but your flesh is your problem. Guys, it's not going to be long till they get here. Please watch and pray. And he goes and he falls in the garden again. And he asks the same request of his father and he comes back and they're sound asleep again. This happens three times. Three times. The hour of temptation had come. Jesus, how did he respond to the temptation? With flying colors. You see, he told the disciples, I could call legions of angels. That's not an issue. But you know, he remained true to his mission. Who is it that failed when temptation came that night in the garden? Those guys who were sound asleep. And there's one more. Go back to the Old Testament. And that beautiful little woman that Samson just had to have. She's playing him for a fool and he's foolish enough to just keep playing into her hands. Oh, Samson... Batting her eyes. Tell me how you're so strong. Oh, well, it's this and this and this. And so she tries that and it doesn't work. Samson is so foolish and so spiritually weak that it does not alarm him that somebody's trying to find out the secret to his strength. And this plays over and over and over and over again. And finally... After her saying, if you really loved me, you'd tell me. He tells her. When she calls for the men to come in and cut his hair, what's he doing? Sound asleep. Is this a message that we ought not ever go to sleep? No. This is a message about spiritually being asleep and the dangers of it. Lost people are counting on us. While we're spiritually asleep, we're not being strengthened. And so we fall prey to sin so much easier. Paul said, what should we do? We should remember what we know and wake up. If you read a little bit further in the text, he gives us a couple other pieces of advice. He said, cast off. The word cast off comes from a, a compound Greek word, apabalo. Uh, 
The word balo means to cast. And apo is the preposition off or away from. Jesus says there's some things that we ought to, as children of God, take them and throw them off of us. And the, and the term, uh, the, the particular tense of the verb that he uses, and that's why I read Weiss' uh, translation of this, is and once, at once do this and do it once for all. Paul's saying, listen, there's some things in, a, in the life of a child of God that we need to cast away from us. One of the things that he mentions here, and again, I don't want to be overly graphic, but actually a couple of the different terms here deal with sexual sins. My heart breaks. And every few months I hear sometimes within the ABA and sometimes without the ABA of men and women who in service of God have gotten caught up into some type of a sexual sin. This is something that's very close to me because I know so many some of them I love and dearly respect. but Satan knows the damage he can do. In the world in which we live with the modern conveniences and technology, there's a lot of good to it. But moms and dads, you better understand there's a lot of harm in modern technology. And if you buy into, and you disagree with me if you want to, but if you buy into this thing that the kids tell you, well, you have to, you have to respect my privacy, you do not understand the role of a family biblically. As a mother and father, the day they get privacy is the day they move out of your house into their own. the damage that is being done. Drunkenness, sexual immorality. One of the writers in our literature in the last few months arrested for child pornography. Preachers that are no longer in the pulpit. Lives ruined and wrecked. Churches who have existed for any length of time have all the stories of somebody running off. I don't know why it's with the piano player, but it's always they run off with a piano player. I have confidence that we don't have to worry about that with Sister Janet. But every church that's existed for any length of time, you know what I'm telling you is true. Families busted up because of sexual immorality. Cast off these things. Cast off the envying and the jealousy and the striving. There is no telling how much more work would be done for the cause of Christ if God's people would quit fighting God's people. You want to fight? You got an enemy. Fight him. <laughs> it's what Paul says. Take the fight to Satan. But quit fighting each other. Because all of these things 
keep us from realizing the time and waking up and going to work. Cast off some things. And then he also says that there were some things that we ought to put on. Let us once and once for all put off the works of the darkness and let us at once and once for all clothe ourselves with the weapons of the light. Paul mentions both ideas here. You can take your body and you can offer it as, as tools and instruments of sexual immorality, of, of drunkenness, of bickering, striving, jealousies, envyings, all of these things. Or you can take your members of your body and say, here it is, Lord. May they become weapons of light. But please understand our time is running out. We cannot sit in here and keep doing the same old and expect to still be here in 25 years. I'm just telling you how it is. There will be no Faith Missionary Baptist Church in 25 years if we do not wake up and get busy about our master's business. You know, Jesus told a parable of a groom who was going to get married. So he was off preparing the, the home that his new bride would live in. They were betrothed, they were engaged, and he's off getting ready and she's getting ready and all the preparations are being made. And he told the story, and it was their custom back then that the groom would return to the bride's house and gather the bride and take her back to the, the, the family house and they'd have a wedding celebration. And Jesus told the parable that after he left, it was the responsibility of his servants. They didn't know exactly what day he would be back and what hour, but they knew he was coming. And he said, you, you be ready. And you make sure you keep your, part of being ready is you make sure you keep your, your, your wicks trimmed in your candles. Make sure you have plenty of oil. Make sure you are ready because you're going to be a part of the welcoming uh, procession when, when I bring my bride home. The Bible says there was ten virgins that had this responsibility. Five of them went to sleep and didn't prepare, didn't have oil ready. They went to sleep. I want you to understand God is right to expect us to spiritually be awake and prepared for His return. I want to read John MacArthur's statement one more time. The phrases, now it is high time. Our salvation is nearer. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. 
they all express one thing. Urgency. Time is limited. Opportunity is brief. There is no time for apathy. No time for complacency. No time for indifference. A few months ago, in a sermon, I got through with the sermon and it was not planned. I had not asked people to do anything because I don't do that. But at the close of the service, God's Spirit had worked. And I won't call names because I don't want to embarrass anybody, but we had two of our ladies that had come forward. And they had said, Brother Jeff, this is going on in my life. And my heart is troubled. Health concerns, family members, things of that nature. Y'all remember that service? Remember what we did when that service closed? Or for actually the closing of that service? We gathered around those two individuals and we prayed. I don't say this to judge. I don't say this to make us mad. Let me ask you this. Why is it that we only have to have a physical tragedy to get here and to do something like that? Why can we not today realize our salvation is nearer than it's ever been and every day it's getting closer? It is true, times have changed. Our message remains the same, but how we address them and the urgency with which we address them must change. It's a matter of life or death. Father, we come to you this morning. I have failed you. Father, I've had no sense of urgency. I've looked at my life and focused on, I got this going on and I need to take care of this and there's all of this and that and the other and there's the, the stresses of this and that, health, all physical stuff, that, some of which is important. But Father, it's been a while since my heart broke to see lost people hurting to see them like your son saw them. Oh God, your word tells us it is high time to wake up. How long has it been, Father, since we here at Faith saw someone come to know Jesus Christ as, our pers- as, as their personal Savior as a result of us being awake working God I I confess to you I confess to these your people as their leader that I I have failed and God I, I ask for forgiveness and I ask for strength to set a better example in the future God it's such a matter of life or death
God, be merciful to us. Spur us on to activity. We ask these things in your precious name. Amen.